You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Creekside family, good morning. Good to see all of you. If it's your first time, my name's Jeff. I'm one of the pastors. So grateful to have you with us here today and grateful to start a brand new series on the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. I don't know how it's pronounced. We're going to go with Habakkuk though. So excited to do that. Before we jump in, uh, one quick reminder announcement. Uh, Men, you know our men's retreat is coming and some of you know that and yet you have not signed up yet. I'm just warning you, the time is growing short. Uh, spots are filling up, but uh, we want to get a firm head count in the next few weeks here. So I know you're out there. I know you've been thinking about it. Just excel still more and actually sign up for the retreat. And I uh, can't wait to see you there. It's just a little encouragement to do that. Let's uh, pray as we go to God's word this morning. So Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we'd be enlightened to know what you have to teach us and receive it. And uh, God, I pray that you would give us hope in the midst of suffering, that you would bring comfort to the afflicted through this book, consolation to the questioning, and that, uh, Lord, we'd have a bigger, wider sense of your mercy, that you meet us in the deepest, darkest moments of our lives and uh, are committed to bringing us out and giving us a future worth living for. Thank you, Jesus, that you've proven that by going to the depths of our sin and coming out the other end in resurrected life. So we trust you. We follow you. We pray you'd be our teacher this morning. In your name, amen. So over the summer, Addie had to read a book before starting eighth grade, and her teacher gave her a list of books to choose from, but she wanted me to read the book with her. So I said, you should read Pride and Prejudice, because that's what I wanted to read. But Addie did not. Instead, she chose the exact opposite kind of book. She chose Night by Elie Wiesel. Uh, If you've never read it, it's Wiesel's memoir about life as a Jewish teenager in the Nazi concentration camps. And it chronicles his own experience and the crisis of faith that he goes through as he witnesses all of these horrific tragedies. And at one point in his book, Wiesel says something interesting. He said at a point, I did not deny God's ultimate existence, but I doubted his absolute justice. I did not deny God's ultimate existence, but I doubted his absolute justice. God, how can you be a just judge if your world is overrun with injustice? That's the question that haunted Wiesel. Uh, It's a question that believers have wrestled with for centuries. And in a sense, it's only a question that a genuine believer can wrestle with. Because if you're a skeptic, you can look at evil and injustice and just say, see, we were right. There is no God. If you're uncommitted to God or indifferent, you're probably not that concerned about this question. The people most troubled by the question are the people who are genuinely seeking God, who know God's character, who trust God's promises, who seek to obey God, and then experience horrific injustice 
that is the person troubled by this issue because they feel the dissonance of this most acutely. This is perhaps the most troubling tension in life. And because we live in a fallen world, this tension is inescapable. If you follow Jesus, you will have a moment where you experience the wickedness and brokenness of the world in such a way that you struggle to reconcile it with what you know about God, his justice and his goodness. And if you haven't had that moment yet, just wait. It's not a matter of if, but when. I had one of those moments about six weeks ago, uh, right after the birth of our son, Nate. Uh, as many of you know, uh, we just had a baby, and Nate was a, a surprise baby. I mean, a surprise <laughs> baby. I know all children are from the Lord. This child was from the Lord, okay? <laughs> it was a surprise. And so I just had this sense, like, this is God's doing. God has a purpose for this kid. He did it, and so fast forward, Nathaniel is born a few days after his birth. Uh, he's not doing well. He's not eating well. He's jaundiced. He's lethargic. His temperature is low. The, the, the flashing indicators are there. This is bad. We take him to the ER. The ER says, ah, this is too much for us. We've got to send him to children's. Children's takes him. They say, okay, this might be meningitis. We need to look at this. We have to do a lumbar puncture. And so they, they try it once and then twice. And then three times, they can't get the sample of spinal fluid. And you know, at the sixth failed time, I finally said, okay, God, why? Why give us the baby and then subject him to this? Why, why go through all this? What is the point? Now, now Nate was fine. Uh, and, and so the troublesome thought, you know, uh, those situations, they subside very quickly. What if he wasn't fine? What if things didn't turn out okay? Because something I know is that God is not obligated to give me a healthy child. He's not. But that doesn't resolve the issue. That's troubling. And if you haven't had that moment yet, you will. And the question is this, how can you maintain faith in the goodness and mercy and justice of God through that? That's why Habakkuk is in the Bible. To help us address that question and teach us how to keep trust through the inevitable tension of life that is coming. So today we're going to start a three-week series on a very little book that answers our very biggest question. Uh, the most troubling question of all. Habakkuk, it's an interesting book. It's a little book, just three chapters. It's right after Nahum and right before Zephaniah, so hopefully that helps you find it in the Bible. Uh, it's a little book, and we know very little about Habakkuk. He's a contemporary of Jeremiah. He prophesied in the late 7th century BC, just before Babylon is going to come in and destroy the temple and invade and all that. And the prophecy is interesting for a number of reasons. First, the genre of this book is very unique. There's poetry, there's songs, there's prophecy. It's a, it's a mix of genres. It doesn't quite feel like a prophetic book at all. The style is unique, but second, the substance of the prophecy is unique as well. Because normally when you think about a prophet, the prophet's job is to speak to the people on behalf of God. 
A, a prophet brings God's complaint before the people. But Habakkuk speaks on behalf of the people to God and presents his people's complaint back to God. And so the book itself is this extended conversation between Habakkuk and God. And it's very interesting because Habakkuk is wrestling with what God wants to do. That, that's interesting because normally when God says, thus says the Lord, the prophets say, okay. God tells Hosea, marry an adulterous woman. And apparently he says, all right. And he does it. God tells Isaiah, go run around naked for three years preaching. And apparently Isaiah said, okay, I'll do that. So most of the time the prophets say, yes, Lord. Uh, Jonah says no, right? He's the one exception that just says, nope, running away. But Habakkuk is the only prophet that, that sits in the middle. He goes, wait, how does that work? I don't understand that. Help me reconcile this, God. He wrestles, and he wrestles until he comes to a deeper, more resolute faith. And that's the key for us. The book takes us through our own process of wrestling with God. And that's why it's a model for us, because you see at the beginning in chapter 1, Habakkuk starts by complaining to God, followed in chapter 2 by silence before God and who he is, that finally breaks forth in praise to God. And the book ends in a very interesting way. In chapter 3, at the very end, verse 19, we read that the prayer is for the choir master to be performed with string instruments. What does that mean? Well, that the prayer of chapter 3 has become a song for the people of Israel. That in fact, this whole book is a model for the corporate worship of Israel and a way of moving through doubt to resolute faith. And that's why it's so helpful to us. It teaches us what to do when we come in this inevitable point of tension and how to move through it to a deeper faith. Now, if you're going to do that, you have to start with doubt because you are going to doubt. You are. Living in a broken world, you're going to doubt God's goodness. But here's the thing. Habakkuk in chapter 1, he models how to doubt. There is a helpful way as a believer to doubt. There is an unhelpful way as a believer to doubt. Doubt is not necessarily the opposite of faith. In fact, doubt can be a necessary step in coming to a deeper, more resolute faith. But it's all in how you doubt, and that's what Habakkuk teaches us to do. So I just want to give an overview of the chapter, and then we'll look at three things about Habakkuk's doubt and what we can learn. But let's start by just looking at this conversation that Habakkuk has. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk cries out to God over the state of his nation, Judah, and he asks, why is there so much injustice among your people? And God, why aren't you doing anything about it? Now, you have to understand Habakkuk's disillusionment with his country. Because hundreds of years earlier, the nation of Israel divided. So there's two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Israel's really bad. 
I mean, they're just wicked through and through. So God judges them. 722, Assyrians come in, take them into captivity. Israel is judged. Judah's bad, but they're not as bad as Israel. In fact, Judah has some good kings. In fact, at certain times, Judah looks like it's going to turn around and return to the Lord. And, and just before this, Israel had, I mean Judah rather, maybe their best king, and that was Josiah. Josiah comes on the scene, he's a contemporary of Habakkuk, and he actually leads the nation back to God. Tears down all the idols, institutes religious reforms, rediscovers the law and reintroduces it to Israel. And so Habakkuk lives during this time with one of the very best Old Testament kings and the country experiences revival. They're coming back to God. Uh, the Egyptians aren't threatening them from the south. The Assyrians are in the north. They're waning. The Babylonians haven't risen to power. So, so Judah is safe. They're coming back to God. They're, they're materially prosperous. Things are looking up. And then in 609 BC, everything changes. Josiah is killed in battle. His son Jehoiakim takes the throne. And Jehoiakim is horrible. You go from the best king to one of the very worst kings, reintroduces all of the idolatry. He's so wicked that he actually kills one of God's prophets, which is something no other king of Judah had ever done. And now, just in a heartbeat, the country is overwhelmed by violence and injustice, and the strong dominate the weak. There are lawsuits, there are contentions, and justice seems paralyzed. The courts can't do anything. Think of the image of a, of a guilty defendant who, who floods the court with false witnesses. And the false witnesses just make the story so convoluted, the judge is overwhelmed and they throw out the case. The powerful are just using their will to get what they want. Justice is not going forward. And when judgments are made, Habakkuk says they're twisted. They're perverted. And so he asks God, why don't you care? Why don't you care about this? What are you going to do about this? Now, here's what's interesting. In verse 5, God answers. Here's what I'm going to do. And he says, look among the nations. The answer is going to come from the nations. And see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe, if told. You know, I'm convinced it's a mercy that God doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen. The older I get, I don't want to know the future. I don't. I, I can't handle everything. I'm built to take things one day at a time. I like the line Jesus says in John 16 to his disciples. I have many things to tell you. You cannot bear them all now. I've come to learn that more and more. Habakkuk says, I want to know the future. I want to know what's going to happen. And God says, okay. I'll show you. But it's going to shock you. Why is it going to shock Habakkuk? Well, let's read on. For behold, God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. 
And they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. What Habakkuk doesn't realize is that a new global superpower is about to emerge. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're coming from the east and they are about to destroy everything in their path. 605 BC, Babylon defeats the Egyptian armies at the Battle of Carchemish and the global balance of power shifts. Egypt retreats back south and now the land of Israel is laid open for the taking. And the Babylonians swoop down to the west and to the south into this new territory, including Israel. And you see just how terrifying this army is. They're like wolves in the evening when they're about to go out for a hunt. They're hungry. They're like an eagle. They're fast. They're hasty. They're relentless. You know, after Babylon defeated Egypt at Carchemish, they chased the Egyptian armies for 150 miles until they were all destroyed. And at the same time, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the general, his dad died back in Babylon. So he runs back to Babylon to become king while the armies are chasing and then runs back to continue the conquest. These people are not messing around. They gather captives like sand. They're unstoppable. They subject countless peoples. And they laugh at their opposition. They see a fortified city. They'd go, we can wait you out. We'll build siege towers. We'll build ramps. We'll dig tunnels under this. We'll do whatever it takes. They were a law to themselves. They were proud. They worshiped their own strength. They defined their own justice. Might made right. That's who's coming for Israel. And God says, this is going to shock you. Now, why would Habakkuk find this so shocking? Why would he have difficulty believing that God would judge Judah through Babylon? Well, let's look at what he says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? <laughs> we shall not die. God, you're going to make an end of us? O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich." Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Now, remember Habakkuk's initial question. God, why aren't you doing anything about injustice? How does Habakkuk answer? He says, I am going to do something. Look at the nations. I'm going to bring Babylon and they're going to judge you. And that's the record scratch moment for Habakkuk. It's just like, wait, hold on. We're bad. I'll grant you that, God. We're bad. The Babylonians are really bad. They're the worst. How on earth can you use more evil people to judge us? It's just going to make the world more wicked, more unjust. How can that be your purpose? How can you use such an evil nation as your instrument? Do you see why Habakkuk is shocked? See, he had a problem with local justice. Now he has a problem with international justice. 
God, now you're making all of the nations more unjust. Why would you let the wicked prosper in this way? And now Habakkuk is questioning cosmic justice. God, why would you let this go on forever? Do you think that, do you think that might makes right? Are you just going to let the Babylonians swoop down and catch people like fish? That's what they're doing. They're just subjugating people like animals. They worship their own power. That's what they make sacrifices to. And they prosper. They live in ease. Is that what you want for the world you created, God? That's a good question, isn't it? That's the dilemma that Habakkuk is going through. All of us will have moments like this, and you'll have this moment not because you're unbelieving, but because you're believing. You'll have it because you're trying to follow God. Habakkuk is not some atheist YouTuber who's coming up with gotcha arguments against God. He is God's prophet. He's a devout follower of Yahweh, and he doesn't know how to reconcile this. And so he is giving us a model for what to do when we're in that situation. Because you will doubt, and doubt can be a crucial part of growing in faith, but there's a good way to doubt, and there's a very unhelpful way to doubt. What's a helpful way to doubt? Three things from this passage. First, I want you to see the permission of Habakkuk to doubt. Second, his posture in doubt. And finally, his perseverance through doubt. And if you're going to doubt faithfully, yes, there's a way to do it. Here's how you do it. First, uh, notice that Habakkuk has permission to voice these doubts to God. In fact, he has God's permission to do it. Doubt has to be dealt with. You know, sometimes people say, have more faith. <laughs> you can't outfaith your doubt. As if somehow you can just kind of faith your doubt into non-existence by wishing it away. No, no, doubt has to be dealt with and it should spur you to a deeper faith. You have to go through it and the first step in going through it is to realize God isn't surprised by your doubt. In fact, he expects his people, his godly people to doubt at times and then to express those doubts to him. And until I embrace the fact that God is not surprised by my doubt, and that God actually invites me to express that doubt, I won't deal with my doubt. Does that make sense? Notice how the book begins. This is very interesting. The book begins, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, an oracle, what is that? It's a message from God revealed to a prophet. Now, when we hear that word oracle, what do we expect next? Here's the oracle God revealed, thus saith the Lord. That's not how the book begins. How does the book begin? What does God reveal? What does Habakkuk perceive? God reveals this whole process of question and answer, of going back and forth with God. The oracle God reveals to his people is actually a dialogue between God and the prophet that involves questioning and complaining. And see, ultimately what Habakkuk perceives is that the entire process of talking with God is part of what God wanted to reveal to his people. Does that make sense? This is what's God revealing. Here's how you talk to God in your doubts. Here's how. He's not just revealing a message, but a process of how to have a conversation towards deeper faith. And you have to express what you're really feeling and thinking to have an honest conversation. You have to. 
You see this throughout the Psalms, don't you? How long? Where are you? Why are you idle? When will you do something? Why do you let the wicked prosper? You see that again and again. And Habakkuk is merely echoing the tradition of the Psalms here and what the psalmists say again and again. And, and did you know 40% of the Psalms are lament? 40%. Grief, depression, doubt, loss, and they are dark. Sometimes they're really dark. Psalm 88 ends with the words, darkness is my closest friend. That's the end. It's not a nine-inch nail song. Like, that's in the Bible. And it's a worship song. Like, we don't sing Psalm 88 here, do we? Do you imagine? Max came up here at the end, just, darkness is my closest friend. <laughs> Go have a donut. Go in peace. We don't sing that way. I won't get into all the reasons for that, because they're interesting. But, but it raises an important question, like, is it appropriate for a New Covenant Christian to sing that way, to pray that way, to express those thoughts? Because we know the truth. We know nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We know that all things work together for good, and, and we know all that. And, and so is it okay to vocalize things like this, even though we know, okay, no, God is present, God is good, God, is it okay to question them? Well, I think the Bible is wonderfully realistic about the fact that life in a fallen world will feel this way. It will be so painful, so inexplicable, and God's ways will seem so inscrutable that it will happen, we will question, we will ask God why. And here's the beauty of Scripture. It anticipates that we will do this, but then teaches us how to do it. See, the, the Bible presents us with a God who's perfectly faithful. He does not fail us. His greatness is unsearchable, but on the other hand, the Bible is filled with these uncensored prayers of pain and doubt, and that is a mercy of God to us. It's a mercy saying that God can meet us in our darkest questioning and pain and actually invite us to, to voice it to him without chiding us without reprimanding us, but inviting us to verbalize it because it's an inevitable process of growing to deeper faith. And until you believe that, you won't have honest conversations with God. Until you, as long as you think, oh, I'm doing something wrong because I'm expressing doubt, you know what that does to doubt? It just makes doubt metastasize. It just makes it bigger because you cannot just sit and deny doubt. It has to be dealt with. And God says, I know. <laughs> And I'm big enough to deal with it and walk you through it to the other side. Habakkuk doubts. He has permission to doubt. But, but here's the key. Notice his posture in doubting. He doesn't doubt like a skeptic. He doesn't doubt in such a way that says, see, I found a defeater belief. Therefore, I'm right and you're wrong. He doesn't do that. Two things to doubt well. If you want to complain to God well, here's how you do it, Okay. First, you complain to God and not about God. You bring that complaint straight to who? To God. See, Habakkuk starts by talking directly to God. How long shall I cry? Will you not hear? I cry. This is what's happening. Will you not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? See, complaining to God is actually an act of faith. Expressing your doubts to God is an act of faith because you're saying you're the only one with answers. 
To who else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so I'm honest, but I'm going to go to you, trusting that in your time, you're going to give me an answer. See, that's the difference. Faithful doubt is bringing it to God. Faithless doubt is just complaining about God to other people. God is like this. God is like that. Do you know why? Because inevitably, do you know what that becomes? Self-justifying. I'm right, God's wrong. That's, that's the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? Oh God, why did you bring us out here to kill us? We should be slaves still. That would be better, right? God is not pleased with that kind of doubting. Because that kind of doubting is ultimately self-justifying. God, you did this. You were wrong. I am this. I am innocent. I am in the right. I put you in the dock. You should be judged, not me. That's self-justifying. And then it leads to what? Self-pity. And I remember my friend saying to me, there is nowhere more dangerous to be than in self-pity. Because once you give in to self-pity, you can justify doing anything yourself because of how bad you have it, how badly you treat it. You complain to God, that's first, not about God. The other problem with complaining about God to other people is that it poisons the well. You can actually lead other people astray from God if you make your accusations in that way. I love Psalm 73, where Asaph has a very Habakkuk-like conversation with God. And he's struggling and he's saying, why did the wicked prosper? Why does this happen? Why, 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 why? But notice who he's talking to, God. And then I love verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What is he saying? That if I had just gone voicing these to everyone indiscriminately complaining about God, ultimately that just is against God's reputation. That's just leading people away from God. I would have betrayed my own generation. Instead, I'm going to give them a model for how to talk to God and get through doubt. That's what Asaph does. Does that make sense? I'm not saying don't talk to other people about your doubts. You need to. You need to voice those things, but that's an honest inquiry. It's not a self-justifying complaining that they're because that's, that's just certainty. That, that's just a different kind of faith. I have faith that I know that God is like this and I am like that. Doubt is saying, I don't understand. Help me to understand. Does that make sense? That's the difference. That, that's the difference, you know. And, and uh, yeah, that's all I'll say. Okay. Gotta, I'm getting better, see? I'm actually editing my sermons as I go, right? I want to I be timely. All right. To God, not about God. Second, he appeals to God's character in his complaints not to his own standards of justice. Did you see that? First, he appeals to the covenant that God made with Israel. He says, God, we shall not die. And that's a good thing for him to say to God. Because what did God promise to Abraham? That I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. You're going to be fruitful and multiply. That Israel will endure. And then God says, I'm going to send this nation that destroys everyone. And Habakkuk goes, hold up, God, you can't do that. You can't destroy us completely because you've promised to preserve us. You can't do that. You see, he's actually appealing to what God has already said in his complaint to God. He appeals to the covenant and he also appeals to God's character. Look at what he, he goes on to say. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil, why do you look idly at traitors? See, God, I know your holiness. I know that, that evil can't stand before you, so how can the Babylonians stand before you? 
How can they be used by you to accomplish your purposes? That doesn't make sense to me. That's a good question, isn't it? God, you are holy. You can't pollute your hands with evil in that way. So how can you use evil to accomplish goods? It seems too direct, the, the causation here, God. How does that work? That's a good complaint. See, because that's honest. It's based on what he knows about God. And here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't just revise his understanding of God to accommodate his doubts. He says, no, you reveal this about yourself. I'm not going to compromise that. I know what's true of you and I hold to it, but I can't reconcile it with this. And so he's not giving in to evil. He's not giving in to warped views of God. He's holding the tension. And if we are going to doubt well, that's how you doubt. Do you know why? Because you are expecting God to give an answer. You're not looking for your own answer to this. I'm going to wait until the Lord gives me an answer worth having and not just settle for one of my own. And that leads to the final point, which is the perseverance through doubt. Here's what I love about the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk doesn't say, I have found the defeater belief against God. Therefore, I'm walking away. Do you know what he says? Chapter two, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what, what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What's he doing? He's saying, I've made my complaint known to God and now I wait on him to give an answer worth having. And I will wait and wait and wait until the Lord makes that known. He doesn't have an answer, but he doesn't conclude on that basis that no answer is to be had. He just says God hasn't revealed it yet. And this is so key when you're in doubt is there are two problems. One is you just go, well, the doubt isn't that big a deal. Whoop, throw it away. Guess what? you'll pick it right back up. You'll pick it right back up because it hasn't been answered to your satisfaction. You're still waiting on the Lord for an answer. The other problem is you just throw your faith away and say, well, because I don't have a good enough answer, there isn't a good enough answer. And therefore, you're basically making your intellect God. That, that I am all seeing, I am all knowing, I have all the answers in the universe and therefore I can put God in the dock and either he isn't all good, he isn't all powerful or he just doesn't exist and I can throw it away. That is just as terrible. In fact, it's far worse to throw your faith away than your doubt away. But one way or the other, you've got to learn to keep your doubt in one hand and your faith in the other hand and hold them and wait. Wait on the Lord. And say, God, I can't reconcile this, but I trust you are who you are, that you're kind and compassionate and good, and that I can't see the whole picture. See, faith is not irrational. It's not turning a blind eye to the world or shutting your brain off when things don't make sense. But neither is faith omniscient. We don't see everything. We are creatures and we are astonishingly limited in our ability to understand God's ways and God's purposes. And ultimately, what we fall back on in that moment is not our own explanatory power of how everything works, but in our knowledge of who God has revealed himself to be. He's faithful, he's just, he's good, he said it, 
And I don't know exactly how to work this out, but I trust that it will work out because I see his faithfulness. That is what you do. Sometimes God gives an answer on this side of eternity. He really does. There are questions that vexed me as an early believer. They don't bother me anymore. I've lived longer. <laughs> they're just not as bothersome to me anymore. There are other questions. There's a few sticky ones. They're good ones, man. I, I have not gotten the answer I want to get yet. Yet. But I'm waiting on the Lord and trusting it. Here's why. I love the way Tim Keller said it. He said, a God who is big enough to worship is a God big enough to do things or allow things for reasons that aren't entirely accessible to us. This is part of being a creature worshiping a creator. That a God big enough to worship has reasons for doing things that are not entirely accessible to us, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have reasons or that his reasons and purposes aren't good. Think about it this way. I like this illustration, and if you're scared of heights, I apologize, but imagine you're on the tallest skyscraper in San Francisco, and imagine there's a viewing deck, and imagine you look out over it, and then you look down at the sidewalk, and I ask you, can you see the ants on the sidewalk? Can you see the ants? And you say, no, the people look like ants, right? I, I can't see any ants. What if you said, because I cannot see the ants, therefore the ants do not exist? The ants are not there. Would that be a valid inference? No, it wouldn't. It just means that your vision is limited. That you don't have the horizon to see it. We don't have the horizon to see everything in God's good purposes that are so grand and so good. We don't see on a long enough time horizon with all of the variables, with all God knows in his infinite wisdom. We're playing chess. He's playing 9D chess. He's playing infinite D chess. <laughs> we can't see it. And part of faith is just saying, this is part of what it means for God to be God and me to be me, is that I don't have to put this all together. But the good news is God will. And he is. And that he will bring a resolution that truly is resolution. We just have to wait on him. Now, there's a problem in that, though, and I'll end here. And the problem is this. We feel that, and we go, yeah, but you know what? That doesn't get God off the hook for the suffering of life. It doesn't get God off the hook. Uh, here's what I would say. Well, first, he's God. This is part of worshiping. Second, we don't, as Christians, worship a God who is indifferent toward our suffering. You might question God's plan. You can never question whether the God revealed in Jesus cares about the suffering you go through. You might say, this doesn't get God off the hook. As one said, but do you realize that God put himself on the hook of your suffering at the cross? That the God revealed in Jesus becomes a human to experience all our pain, all our disappointment, 
all of our questions. He asks God if there's any other way. But I yield to you because you're the Father. And Christ, the only truly righteous sufferer, suffers the worst injustice. And goes to the depth of our doubting and despair and under it to exhaust its power and die. And that is the God revealed in Jesus who sits attentively at the right hand of God and listens to your prayers now. And so the one thing you can never say when you pray is, God, you don't know what this is like. No. The God revealed in Jesus says, I know better than you'll ever know what this is like. See, see that kind of God, I don't have to know how he resolves everything to know that he's committed to my good. And frankly, I would far rather walk through life with questions next to that God than to have those questions without that God. All right, let's pray. So God, I, I thank you, God, um, that you meet us in our doubt. And I just, I know that there are people in this room who carry a heavy burden of suffering, of questions, and Lord, ultimately, they don't need my answers. They need your presence, Jesus. That you are gentle and lowly and that you are accessible. That you are a compassionate high priest serving in the throne room of God, making intercession for your saints. And that when we cry out to you, you know intimately what we feel. And you don't chide us or discourage us, but welcome us. And you are closer than we could imagine in the midst of our suffering. Thank you for proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that you aren't indifferent to us in our pain and that you are committed to taking us from where we are to a future worth having with a resolution beyond what we can imagine. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hold on to faith and not settle for easy resolution, but wait on you to bring it in your time, trusting you will. In your name, Jesus, amen.